divided church creates confusion among believers and unbelievers. The principles of the Restoration Movement remind us to go back to the authority of the New Testament to restore the unity and simplicity of our faith. in this series, uh, what kind of church is this? And so we're exploring uh, who we are and where we come from. And so that, like you might invite a friend, maybe you've invited somebody here today, and sometimes people will ask, well, what kind of church is that? You know, Cornerstone, what kind of church is that? And so hopefully by the end of the series, you'll have a few intelligent answers to sort of describe more about who we are than just, you know, great Callan's coffee and really beautiful smiling faces, and everybody's really cool, and you can walk right in from the parking lot, and they have this really cool worship, or worship minister, children's minister, student minister, you know, and this really muscular-looking preacher, and, you know, you can... <laughs> all right, all right, I stepped in it, I know. So, uh, but anyway, the point is that, uh, that we are a church from a movement called the Restoration Movement, and you need to know about that, because you need to know... Uh, where the leadership is coming from, what frame of mind. It's important to know a little bit about our history. And uh, the first week in the series, we talked about... I'm going to put the lid back on this. The first week, we talked about uh, we're messy people. And when you come to a group of people that are messy, there's things that happen that uh, you didn't expect and you didn't know about. And the early church was a lot like that. There were all kinds of problems in the early church when they began but by God's grace and through His power, people changed and were transformed and became new creatures in Christ. New creation, maybe you ought to say it that way. All right, and then uh, last week, Mickey was here and he talked about uh, how our identity in Christ in the church is so important when we're going through immense suffering. And, uh, and he certainly is one who has done that. And this week, we're going to be talking about the source of our faith, the source of the authority in the church. Uh, this is a picture of the headwaters of the Dan River. I mean, it's not the, obviously, it's a little further up the trail of the river. But uh, back years ago, when we began as an organization, as a church, uh, one of our church family invited all the leaders, their wives and staff. We all went up to this little mountain cabin. And uh, we spent the weekend up there praying and, and talking about uh, the future of Cornerstone. And, and you know, this is, we, we're still in Alphabet Junction, still learning the ABCs of Christianity at the Little Daycare Center. Some of you used to laugh at that joke. I know I've told it a lot, but others are like, what? Anyway, we, we started out like just in this little nursery kind of place. And uh, anyway, uh, I was like the first time I'd ever saw the Dan River, the headwaters of the Dan River up in you know, Mount Airy and Galax up in the hills uh, right there, you know, and it was beautiful. I mean, this little babbling creek and, you know, uh, birds are singing and leaves are flowing through the water and it was all peaceful and nice and it was just beautiful. And, and I thought, man, this is the headwaters of the Dan River. So this is what I had previously thought about the Dan River when I drove through Danville years ago when working for different uh, people and and, and and knowing what that river normally looks like, brown, and, and here we got some of the, um, some of the power plant uh, stuff from Duke has floated in, and there was a big deal about that, and 
I had mostly thought about like the Dan River as a polluted kind of place you would never swim in. And if you catch fish in there, make sure you throw them back and all of that. Right. Because that was my understanding of what the Dan River was like when it came, you know, through these cities uh, that it goes through today. I had never thought about it as a place that like, well, the headwaters of the Dan, I, I could probably drink out of that stream and be fine. I wouldn't drink out of the one in the Danville. Right. I mean, one gives life, one gives you know, a trip to the hospital, right? I mean, when we think of water, we normally don't think of it as polluted, but sometimes it becomes polluted because pollutants filter their way in there in different ways, different, different means, you know, and, and it becomes a place that you uh, would not uh, find life in. The church, it begins in 50 A.D., I mean, 30 A.D., 50, day, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. And, and when it begins, it begins messy, but it, it's pure. By that I mean the doctrine, the teachings, the, the communication that came from the leaders were the apostles of Jesus. And they're just teaching what Jesus taught them to others. And, and so the church is raw and it's exciting. It's, it's got some rough edges, but it's, it's like that babbling brook, you know, at the mountain. It's, it's kind of wandering down the rocks, and, and it's beautiful, it's pristine, and it's life-giving. But over a period of time, uh, it, it, it begins to have brought into it contaminants. Now, what we are a part of is the restoration movement. And so what we're trying to do as a church and as a tribe is trying to restore simple New Testament Christianity, and one of the means by that, by, by how that happens, is returning to the Bible, especially the New Testament, as our source of authority. As book, chapter, and verse, what does it say about this issue? And so, so that's what we're trying to do. Sometimes the Bible doesn't speak about that issue, and so we exercise opinions and offer liberty in areas that the Bible's not, you know, vocaling, uh, not vocalizing anything about, but, but many times the Bible is saying a lot about certain very important topics, and so the restoration movement is a movement trying to return back to the headwaters of Christianity, back to where it was pure and pristine and where it was life-giving. We are a church that goes to the source of the Bible for our faith. So we don't have any creeds but Christ, right? We don't have any uh, uh, other books that we've attached to the Bible. It's not some special revelation that has come into my mind. It's made all this up. No, we just look to the Bible as our source of faith. Over the years, uh, the, the centuries that the church has existed, there have been different groups of people who've tried to do different types of things to bring purity to the church. So there have been different groups who've tried like a filtration system, right? And the, what I mean by that is they, they've, they've gotten certain rules that they've put into place to filter out certain contaminants. And, and they might have made sense during that moment, during that time, in that culture, in that moment of time, but after time, those laws don't make sense anymore. Those rules aren't, they're not from the Bible, they're from Somebody who was trying to help other people just stay followers of Jesus. And so they, they, all of a sudden, you know, you go decades or even centuries later, and these, these rules have turned groups of people into having all types of rules about this thing and that thing and this thing. There's the Bible, and oh yeah, here's our list of rules on all these other things. 
right? Maybe you've come from a group like that. Um, Another way people have tried to purify the church is they've tried to collect a little pristine pool of water somewhere. And they get this little pool of water, and then they all huddle around it, and they say, we'll stay right here. Now, there's a problem with that. Other people can't get to that pool of water because you're all bunched up over here. And so over decades or even centuries, these groups of people have become isolated. And you don't find your way into their community and they don't find their way into yours. But yet we know that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And so that that can't be the right way. The only real way to, to find New Testament Christianity is to go as far back to the source as you possibly can. And we can because we have the New Testament. And if we have the Bible in our language, we can understand it. We can work through a lot of confusing issues. As a matter of fact, all we need is the Bible. The Apostle Paul said this. He said, all Scripture is God-breathed. The word Scripture means the inspired word. The word Bible means Biblios means books, so we kind of parallel those two words. But when we talk about Scripture, we're talking about the Bible, okay, just to be clear. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know what Paul just said? He said, if you've got the Bible, you've got what you need to know how to serve the Lord, how to find salvation, how to, how to be a blessing, how to build the kingdom. Like, this is what we need. And so God reveals his revelation to us through our human condition. So the Bible is written over a period of 1,500 years, written in three different continents and 22 different countries and three different languages. People who've written books in the Bible are kings and poets and and farmers. They're in prison and they're in a temple. I mean, they come from all walks of life, and yet God is able, because He's God, He's able to give His revelation to us through their human experience, and that bears itself out, but it's still God's Word, and it's sufficient for what we need to understand about our faith. We don't need anything else. We just need the Bible. And so, one of the core values of Cornerstone, what kind of church is this? One of our core values is this. The Bible is our final authority. Culture may change, the world may change about all kinds of issues and topics, but that's not our authority, and it never will be. It will always be the Scriptures. It will always be what God's Word says. Even when the world changes, we're still going with what God's Word says because God's Word says this about itself, that it will outlast all other things. It will never perish, right? All right, anyway... uh, so the Christian community that began uh, started out at the headwaters of faith, like the Jesus teaching and the apostles, and they're getting it straight from the source. And they're growing, and the church is growing rapidly, like fantastic, even through persecution. As a matter of fact, the more Christians they killed, the more Christians were born again. And, and it, just, it just flourished all over the Roman Empire so fast that a problem began to exist, and that was not having enough educated teachers and communicators to talk about what Jesus and the apostles taught. And so uh, there were different uh, uh, errors and, and, if you will, polluted streams that found their way into the early church. And so uh, one of the first one of those was called Arianism. 
And Arianism was this great conflict, one of the first major conflicts in the church, and that was over this. Was Jesus created by God, like Jesus was, was a special creation of God to communicate the gospel, the good news to mankind, or was Jesus the begotten of God, and He is God who put on flesh and bone, and that God exists in a triune state, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Arianism, this was the big debate. It split the church wide, wide open. People were being, like, put to death over it. And so Constantine, in his wisdom, funded a council called the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. And, the, and what they were trying to do was, was get rid of this heresy, get rid of this conflict by educating people as to what the Scriptures taught about the deity of Jesus. And so the church leaders gathered in one town, in one place, and they began to work through this. And many of those people who were in error came to the truth. A couple of them didn't. They weren't treated so well, you know, because humans are involved in this. It's messy people, right? But the point is that the council began to uh, present uh, a statement of faith, right? We call it the Apostles' Creed today, that... Uh, that, that defined what we believed about Jesus and, and who he was. Now, it's good and bad that that council happened. There were other councils that followed the Council of Nicene. What happened was this. <clears throat> the councils began to be seen as the source of authority for the church and not the New Testament. And so people began to look to see what the council said and not what the scriptures said. Now... Granted, we don't have, like, the Bible all canonized and distributed all over the world. So many of these people are just depending upon the leaders that they have in front of them. And that's probably what you and I would do the same thing. So what I'm saying is, like, they're trying to do something good. But over time, the councils begin to assume the authority over the church. And that becomes the problem, you see. Because the councils don't always stay true to Scripture. They have their own problems over history. And so <clears throat> we advance to 1500 A.D., that, that period of time. And there's this priest who has stumbled upon a portion of the Latin New Testament, and he begins to read it. And he begins to have this great conflict inside of him. And the problem that he sees is that in the church, there's this pay-to-play thing called indulgences. And the state church was doing just that. They were indulging in indulgences. And so if you wanted to have an affair, you just paid it ahead, you know, and the priest would absolve your sin. If you wanted to knock somebody off, you know, you, you paid for that. And if you wanted to, you know, do this or that, and you just started to indulge in sin, indulgences. And, and this man, his name was Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was just, he was broken. He was angry. He was sad. He... He couldn't stand to see what was going on. It was so corrupt. And he comes to this conclusion, and one of his main statements is this, sola scriptura, which means by scripture alone. And what Luther is saying, is saying it to us, and he said a lot of things. He, he's trying to reform a broken church by getting the church to see the Bible as the authority and not what this guy said or what that council said. Can we just... Look at the scriptures. He got in a lot of trouble because he translated the Latin scriptures into the German tongue. And that was a problem. 
Because now a whole bunch of people can read the Bible for themselves. And so there's all kinds of problems that are created during that time period. And good things and bad things are done on both sides of the issue. But the point is that in 1500 and thereabouts A.D., there, we just celebrated last year was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation movement. There was this effort to return back to the headwaters of our faith, to go back to where it began and not so far downstream where all the pollutants are at. Now, 200 years ago, a little over 200 years ago, the restoration movement began, which is what we're a part of. And what we're trying to do is restore the New Testament church and we have a lot of uh, similarities between the Reformation movement and what we're a part of. And we have some coined phrases to help explain that. Some of them I repeated in the first message, but I'll, re uh, I'll say them again. We have no book but the Bible, no creed but Christ. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. Essentials, unity, and opinions, liberty, and all things love. Just a few of the phrases that identify who we are and what we're about. And so... We're 21 centuries from when the church began. We're way downstream in history. There are a lot of things that have flowed into the church over that period of time. And like Martin Luther, he says, we've got to return back to what the Bible says. That's what we are. We're returning back to what the Bible says in, in, in how we practice our faith, how we view Jesus, how, all kinds of things. Like, what, what does the Bible say about that? And that's what, who we are. And so if somebody says to you, well, what kind of church is this? Well, you can say, well, we're a church that bases our faith on what the Bible says. Oh, well, that's cool. I thought every church did that. And you, someone might say, well, I don't know. Maybe they do, but there are some that don't. Some have done other things, all right? So anyway, what I'm saying is that I know this is possible, and I know we should do this because Jesus prayed for it. On the night of his betrayal, the night before he's going to hang on the cross the next day, he prays in the garden, and John records his prayer for us. And in the middle of that prayer, he's praying for the people, you and I, who are sitting here today. This is about you and me. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. Them there is the apostles. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and me. We believe in Jesus because we read the New Testament. That all of them may be one, united, not divided. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also believe in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. Here's what Jesus is saying. A divided church will be problematic to reaching people with the gospel. A united church, a church that sees the New Testament as their authority and practices New Testament Christianity will have a loud voice, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one message, to the world so that they might believe. Jesus prayed for this. So we should not say this isn't important. This is like we shouldn't say, well, let's just agree to disagree. There are issues that you can agree to disagree in. But when it comes to who Jesus is and what the gospel is and how important it is to live faithfully unto death, like these are things we should agree on because the scriptures are very plain about it. And so... Uh, Jesus wants us to return back to him and the apostles as our source of faith. And we can do that. See, <clears throat> Luther was translating the scripture from Latin to German. 
And then he also had some resources for Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. But the point, but what we have in the Reformation movement was this. The King James Bible, which was a good translation in its day, was printed uh, for 17 cents a copy in the Americas. And so there's this pioneer spirit that exists in the Americas. And in that attitude and having the Bible in English and being able to read it by your fireplace or lamp at night changed the church dramatically. People began to say, well, I can see this isn't right because I can read it right here in Scripture. This is what we should be doing. And so it caused conflict, but it also caused a movement that we're a part of, the restoration movement. And so there's a couple examples of this that we practice here that I want to identify so that you might understand this is how this plays out in what we do and what we say. The first one is this baptism. So uh, you, you probably have seen somebody baptized like the picture in front of you. Why do we do that? Well, we do that because that's what they did in the Bible. Paul writes in Galatians 3.27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And so when a person is immersed into Jesus, they put on the righteousness of Jesus, and they're seen as a son or a daughter of God. It's a beautiful thing. And, and so we practice immersion. Why? The word baptizo means immersion. It was a term first used in the Greek culture to dye fabric. And so they would take a piece of white linen, and they would dip it into a vat, purple or red, and they would change the state, the color of that fabric by immersing it into water. And so it's amazing when you read the Bible, like, you're like, oh, okay, that's what that means. It, baptism means immersion. There is a, a word for sprinkling in the Greek. It's radtizo. Baptizo means to immerse. Radtizo means to sprinkle. And in the Old Testament, the high priest would take a hyssop branch, dip it into the bull's blood, and then as an act of atonement, take that branch and sprinkle it, ratizo it, on the Ark of the Covenant and the altar. And so we have different words that mean different things. I can take a shower or I can take a bath. I can jump in the pool or I can walk through the stream. You get it, right? Different words mean different things. When we look in the book of Acts, where there are all these conversions about all these people coming to faith in Jesus, here's what we find. Sometimes they confess Jesus is Lord. Sometimes they turn from their sin, like it might have been beating one of the Christians, right? Sometimes they will actually make a statement of faith. But in every one, every example of conversion in the New Testament, immersion is always there now we should take note of that because i know as a parent and as a grandparent i repeat things for emphasis i repeat things because i want them to be clearly understood it's important and so here's what i'm saying like we have these scriptures now at a baptism you often you often hear a confession why do we do that well, that's what that's what peter did that's what jesus asked peter who do you say that i am and peter says you are the christ the son of the living god that's why we do that and so we look at what they did in the bible and we say, okay, let's practice that because that gives us a, a principle or a pattern to follow so that we might do what they did. We're returning back to the headwaters of our faith and, and, and looking to see what they did. And we just, try to, we just try to do the same thing. Another one is communion. Why do we take communion every week? Well, they did that at least every week in the Bible. 
Acts 2.42, the day the church began in 30 A.D., we read that they devoted themselves, these early believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of the bread. And there's a definite article in the Greek that you know this, is, this isn't just a meal because in a few verses later it talks about how they would have these fellowship meals. And then we also read uh, in Acts 27 that on the first day of the week, they gathered together to break bread. They would come together and they would take the Lord's Supper together. And this is important. Now, they may have had communion every time they came together. Like maybe more than once. I had communion twice today, right? And, and so uh, they may have done that. But we know at least when they came together on the first day of the week, that communion was the center point of why they came together to remember what Jesus had done and the victory he had brought them. And then also we read, Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six and 28, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and everyone ought to examine themselves. Here's the point. Every time you take communion, whether you understand it or not, you're declaring to the world that Jesus is returning. You're saying Jesus, Jesus lived, died, resurrected, and he's coming back. And the reason that there's not a person, a clergy person up here who is checking you out to see if you're okay to take communion, because back in the old days, you used to have to show your token to whoever was in charge of that church, and they would tell you, you're good to take it. And, and, and like the reason we don't do that is because the Bible says that each person ought to examine themselves. So before you take communion, you're doing a, a spiritual inventory, uh, an inventory about, you know, are, am, I, is, am I doing this in the right manner? I mean, am I, is my head on straight here today? Am I, I'm so mad at my wife, I can't stand her, I almost punched her out before we got in the car today. You know, I'm not, I didn't do that. I didn't do that, right? I'm just saying, it's an example, right? It's illustration, right? Just so you know, like, the Bible says if you've got aught with your brother or your wife, go to them first before you move any further forward in, in whatever you're doing when it comes to God because you can't, you know, this duplicity is not going to work with Jesus. All right, anyway, uh, leadership. <clears throat> so when it comes to leadership, the church is to be locally governed by multiple people. We're, we're part of a big tribe called the Restoration Movement, but no one is telling us what to do. We're locally governed. We're, we're lo locally, oversight is provided with people who are already here, people that you know. You know some of these men and women who lead and minister in this church, and you know their lives. And, and you can check them out. And you should check them out. And so the New Testament presents that the local church is led by a group of humbly surrendered men. That's not all carried out by men. Women carry out many roles. But here's what the Bible says. To the elders among you, be shepherds of God's flock that are under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over, them, over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade. And so I encourage you, like, if, you, if, you could, if there's any way you could come to lunch after this meeting, you ought to come. And you will meet some of the elders. And you will hear all their names. And you will understand who is the local leadership. You will also meet the ministry team that is men and women. Matter of fact, women play a major role 
in the, in, the, in the establishment of the church. Not only they were ministering to Jesus and the apostles, and there were, there were deacons and deaconesses, so there were men and women serving, but there were also this woman, Lydia. We think she's the first evangelist who go up into Europe and spread the gospel. Uh, there's a, a woman that is mentioned, we think it's a woman mentioned by Paul as a female apostle. And so uh, her name is Junius. And, and so there's a debate, well, was it a woman or was it a man's name that had a feminine uh, ending on it? We, you know, I, here's what I tell you. I don't know. With great humility, I approach the Bible. And I recognize that I don't know it all. Do you know it all? All right, if you do, there's a church down the street that's waiting for you to come explain it to them, all right? No, I'm just joking about that. We don't want you to leave. My point is that... <clears throat> This is what the Bible says about the church to be governed. The church is not designed to be governed by a convention way far away or some, some high tower way far away. The church is to be locally governed. And, and always be careful when one man is in charge of a local church. Right? So when you have the pastor who sits in the throne chair on stage, watch out for that one. Because here's what I know about power. It corrupts. And it corrupts absolutely. And so that's in God's wisdom. The power is distributed among a group of people who are accountable to the congregation. And that is what the Bible teaches about leadership. Um, now, all that's about the church stuff. Now I want to bring it home to you personally, you who walked in here. You who have no dog in the hunt about coming to church here. You're just like, hey, somebody said you had good coffee and clean bathrooms and I showed up. So, you know, so I'm here. All right. I want to. I want to take this from, you know, the, the, the universal level and get it down to the personal level, okay? Jesus says that he's the headwaters, the source of living water for your soul. In John 4, he meets this woman who's been married five times, and she's living with somebody who's not her husband now, and she's the outcast of the community. And Jesus sits down, and he has this honest conversation with her. And in that conversation, he says this. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Spring of water is what the NIV translates, and that's exactly right. It's like the headwaters. Jesus is saying, like, I'm that bubbling spring inside of you. <laughs> Some of you remember that song from Children's Church? Spring up, oh well, gush, 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 right? And we used to love singing that as kids. Some of you are just like, what did he just say? Just forget about it, all right? Forget about it, um, as Rick Rizzi would say. But uh, anyway, uh, the point is that, that you and I, when we drink Jesus, when we want him to be the source of our life, when the way he thinks is the way we're trying to think, and the way... He walks and talks is a way we're trying to emulate that. What we're doing is we're taking in the very spring of life into who we are. When you walk into this church and you look to the right, first you look to the left, see who's in front of the or right. First you look to the right to see who's in front of the coffee. And then you look to the left, you see this big tapestry that says Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith and Jesus is the cornerstone of cornerstone. Like, it's all about Jesus. When we walk away from who he is, we walk away from life. But if we take him in, like if we read his words and we go, this is who I want to become. I have good news. Many of you are very broken and messed up. 
You looked at things last night you shouldn't have. You said things this week you shouldn't have. You got mad at somebody that you shouldn't have got mad at. And you know you're broken. And, and, and no one needs to tell you that. And like, oh, great, the preacher told me I'm broken. Well, here's what I got good news. If you will drink Jesus in, if you will consume him, his words become your life, you will be transformed and you shall be like him when he returns. This I got good news. You don't have to stay broken. You don't have to stay messed up. Like you can actually become a person who is life-giving. And that's the good news. You see, what Jesus is saying is not only do I bring you eternal life, woman at the well, married five times, living with this man who's not, or woman who's not, I don't know. But the point is he's, he's saying, listen, you will have something to give someone else. You will have words of truth and hope to give to people. Because I don't know about you, but I meet people every day that are looking for some hope and some truth and some, and some, some kind of good news. And, and, and we're, not, you know, we're not giving that good news at line at McDonald's maybe, but like there's this guy we work with or this person we know and, and, and maybe on social media we see they're having a really rough time and we're like, hey, let me give you some hope and you just quote a scripture to them. Like you just help them out a little bit with the words of life. Two decades, nearly two decades, I have been part of this community of believers. And I have heard this statement more than once. And it sounds just like this. If it had not been for this church, I would have whatever. Fill in the blank. I've heard that multiple times. So here's what I know. That we as a community of believers who are drinking in Jesus, we have something to give someone when they come in here and they're spiritually empty. We have hope to give them. There are a lot of great organizations in the world. And they do some amazing things. But this organization, the Lord's Church, is planning a new kingdom on this world. And there's a new kingdom to come that's going to be amazing. And so we are offering people entrance into that kingdom. Then we talked about the gospel. We are offering them eternal life because eternal life is springing up. I've got a well, gush, 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 right? It's coming out. It's, 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 I have something to say that gives people hope. And so maybe you're here today and you're like, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Because my life stinks. And you would not believe what they did to me. And I can't, I don't, I don't know if I can ever get past that. This church is tapped into the headwaters of life. And if you will give Jesus and his church a chance, you can find that too. This is a picture of the Cayuga River just south of Cleveland on fire. 1969 how does a river catch on fire well the ship traffic out of lake erie leaking things and the factories that were dumping things in the river put a skim of flammable stuff on top of the water and a train crossing the river on a train trussle sparks come off the wheels land on the water and it catches fire I don't think of a river on fire. I think of like you put the hose in the river to put out a fire, right? And so 
it took them a long time to put the fire out. The flames got so hot that they melted the train tracks. That's how hot it got. <clears throat> Pollutants had got into the river and caused massive destruction. What is pouring into your life? It's all the social media stuff. It's some stupid show on television. It's that high school friend that you just never were able to like. Like they just keep influencing you in the wrong way. Like maybe it's really weird stuff. Like you, you, you know, you're working with crystals and crystals or and some kind of seance and a Ouija board and you're like what? What's pouring into your life? Like who's speaking into your world? Who do you listen to? Because here's what I'm saying. If you allow pollutants to enter your life long enough, there's going to be some destruction. And you never saw it coming. I listened to a just awesome speech. We're going to hopefully, maybe some of you young people can meet this guy, but he's an NBA basketball player and he, he calls it first day. His talk, ESPN Films put this together. It's, it's amazing. Uh, maybe, maybe not even should bring it up right now, but I just, I, it seems like I need to right now, all right? So maybe the Spirit's speaking to me right now. Bring this up right now. And he talks about, he talks about, if I asked you to show me a picture of an alcoholic or a drug addict, you would probably show up a picture of a, maybe a homeless guy or, or a woman who's lost all her teeth from smoking meth or something. He says, that's what you would show me. But he says, I want to show you a picture of an addict on the first day. And he says, it looks just like you. See, if we allow these pollutants to enter our life, at some point in time, they're going to bring a destruction we never saw coming. So that's what I'm begging. That's what I'm pleading. Like, if you allow Jesus to enter into your world on a regular daily basis, you will have the river of life in you and springing out of you. This is a picture of that same Cayuga River today, and this is in Cincinnati. Much cleaner, and that's good, right? And it's brought beauty and it's brought life to the places around it because the pollutants have been pulled out. That's the you have to see this, folks. We cannot allow this nastiness to enter us and not have some kind of an effect. Now, I want to give you something to do, something you can take home today that will help you bring this living water, all right? It's called the Shema, the Jesus Shema, or the Jesus Creed. And we talked about this in our Wednesday night group, but there's this prayer and statement that Jews for centuries repeat called the Shema. Shema means to listen. Jewish word, a Hebrew word, mean to listen. And, and so Jesus took the Shema and then he added, he put an amendment on it. And here's what he said. Love the Lord God, or the Lord God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. I've been praying this. And reciting this in my brain at least three times a day. I find myself doing it up to seven and eight times a day. Every day. And it's changing the way I think about the moment. And about others. Now. That last statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Some of you hate yourself, so I know why you hate your neighbor. Some of you, your well sounds like this. I'm a failure. I'll always be alone. I'll never get past that sin. I'll never get past that mistake. I'll never get past prom night. I'll never get past the DUI. I, I keep failing. People look at me this and this is all they see. That's what you keep saying to yourself. Stop going to that well and drink. Start drinking from Jesus. You are a child of God. You shall be like him. If you're in Jesus, you wear his righteousness. You will live forever in Christ. There is nothing that will overtake you, overwhelm you. Love God with all that you are. And as you begin to love yourself again, you'll be able to love others. Instead of giving them the Y and P sign when they cut you off, you just won't worry about it. Right? Come on. Can I get a witness? Right? I can't believe you did that. So anyway, I'm just joking, right? The point is, like, it begins to, when, if we'll just say the Jesus Creed, if we'll just repeat this Shema on a regular basis, it will begin to change how we look at going into a job we hate. It may begin to change what, you, what your purpose of life is. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for being here. And I'm asking you to be in each of us. Lord, I feel so inadequate whenever I preach the gospel because I'm a broken man, but I'm being healed by you. But here's what I know. In my weakness, you're made perfect. Here's what I know, that you work in impossible situations. Here's what I know, that if we'll simply read the Bible and read it to others, life can spring forth from just those readings. Here's what I know, that if you're present where believers are gathered, you are there in their midst and you are working. And there's no doubt in my mind that you are working in people in this room. And Father, I'm praying that we would respond to your love. We would respond to grace and truth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for joining us. You can find us on the web at cornerstonechatham.org.